lights over my Look over here Welcome to another episode of Checkmates, a political podcast from Tenement Yard Media. You can follow us on Twitter at Tenement Yard underscore, and you can visit our website at www.tenementyardmedia.com. I'm the host for this episode, and my name is Paige. In this episode, I will be speaking with Ulysses Calvo Borges. And Mr. Calvo Borges is an embassy official at the Embassy of Cuba in Jamaica. Can you briefly talk about the embargo and its impacts on Cuba? Cuba is a developing small island state facing not only the vulnerabilities inherent to that condition but also suffering from the effects of the most prolonged and comprehensive system of coercive unilateral measures applied against any country in the world, the USA blockade also called embargo. This behavior of successive USA administrations, both Democrats and Republicans, towards revolutionary Cuba has been consistent with this memorandum that Deputy Assistant Secretary of State of the USA, Lester Mallory, wrote in 1960. And I quote, The majority of Cubans support Castro. There is no effective political opposition. The only forcible means of alienating internal support is through disenchantment and disaffection based on economic dissatisfaction and hardship. Every possible means should be undertaken promptly to weaken the economic life of Cuba, denying money and supplies to Cuba, to decrease monetary and real wages, to bring about hunger, desperation and overthrow of government. End of quote. What I just cite is the real reason for the blockade. No, the pretext has changed throughout the years. Our support to the National Liberation Movement in Latin America in the 60s, our fight in Africa against the apartheid and their allies, our relationship with the USSR, or more recently, alleged human rights concerns or our relationship with Nicaragua or Venezuela. Whatever fits them to justify the unjustifiable. During his administration, President Donald Trump abandoned the process of normalization of bilateral relations carried out by his predecessor, Obama. On the contrary, he implemented 243 new unilateral coercive measures to restrict the visit of American travelers, adopted wartime measures to deprive us from fuel supplies, hounded the health services we provide in many countries, increased harassment against commercial and financial transactions in other markets, and intimidated foreign investors and commercial entities with the application of Title III of the Helm-Burton Act. Now, in 2020, Cuba, like the rest of the world, was faced with the singular challenges posed by the COVID-19 pandemic. The US administration took on the virus as an ally in its merciless non-conventional warfare. It deliberately and opportunistically stepped up the economic, commercial and financial blockade. When COVID-19 arrived, the USA government didn't do anything to alleviate the suffering of the Cuban people. On the contrary, it blocked donations from third countries 
and frustrated the acquisition of medical equipment by Cuba to fight the pandemic. The pandemic. In addition, it took measures to effectively cut off remittances from the USA to Cuba. It is remarkable that a small island subjected to a blockade has been able to produce five vaccine candidates and apply three of them. However, the blockade has made it very difficult for us to access to some of the reagents necessary for their development and to the raw materials used for their manufacturing. U.S. authorities have cynically tried to plan the idea of the failure of our system and the ineffectiveness of the Cuban government, that the coercive measures do not affect the people nor are actually a significant factor for the difficulties faced by the domestic economy, but numbers say otherwise. From April 2019 to December 2020, the damages caused by the blockade amounted to over 9.1 billion US dollars at current prices, an average of 436 million US dollars per month. During the last five years, losses due to the blockade exceeded the amount of 17 billion US dollars. At current prices, the accumulated damages in six decades amount to over 147 billion US dollars. If you take into account the devaluation of the US dollar respect to the price of coal, it amounts to over 1.3 trillion US dollars. I wonder what would happen to other economies including those of rich countries, if subjected to similar conditions. What would be the social and political repercussions? Can you discuss the protests in Cuba? How did they come about and who are the relevant actors? The incidents of 11th July don't reflect a social outbreak. Cuba was a victim of a political communicational operation orchestrated from the USA soil that caused limited-scale disturbances. These were rejected by the vast majority of the Cuban people. In fact, the majority of people who went to the streets that day were supporters of the revolution. Note that not everybody who took part in the 11th July incidents is a criminal or committed violent acts. There were legitimate claims out of discontent, such as the ones related to blackouts in several areas of the country caused in part by the economic warfare measures by the USA that blocked the entry of ships with oil and the acquisition of parts and technologies to maintain the power generation systems in the country. However, the calls for alteration of the order, with the pretext of the economic difficulties the country faces, encourages criminal elements to commit acts of violence. On 11th and 12th July, Violent and criminal acts were committed against headquarters of organizations, stores, and their employees, as well as against police posts, personnel, and vehicles. The U.S. administration allocates every year tens of millions of dollars from the federal budget and additional amounts from cover funds to create political and social instability amidst the economic difficulties. They reckon that if they subject the Cuban population to hardships and promote artificial leaders who incite to chaos and instability, they could create a virtual political movement in digital networks to be later transposed into the real world.
So, the incidents of 11th July were neither spontaneous nor devised from within Cuba. The media campaign that prepared the ground for and magnified them was orchestrated from the accounts based on the USA, from companies and groups, some of them linked to terrorism, that received funding from the USA. The Cuban government has provided evidence of this. For instance, an analysis of the funny behavior of the SOS Cuba hashtag in Twitter shows that the protests and acts of violence were encouraged as part of a non-conventional warfare strategy carried out by USA against Cuba and other countries. As part of this operation, a lot of manipulated information and outright fake news circulated through social media and some of them found a place into recognized media outlets. It is known that Fox News blurred the posters with the slogans in support of the revolution that pro-government demonstrators in Cuba were carrying and presented said protests as anti-government. There were pictures and videos of protests and acts of violence in Venezuela, Brazil, Egypt and other countries that were portrayed as happening in Cuba. There were news about whole provinces of Cuba being overtaken by the protesters and of revolution leaders renouncing or fleeing Cuba, all of them fake. However, all this bombardment of misinformation had an effect on some people around the world who is not familiar with the Cuban reality. And I suppose that some exaggerations regarding the supposed repression of peaceful protesters will have made their mark on some of the not so well informed. Cuba reaffirms his right to defend its national integrity and sovereignty. Any attempt to alter peace and the constitutional order will face adequate response within the margins of the internal and international law. The law has been enforced to process those who committed violent acts, larceny or caused damages to the social property. There haven't been any forced disappearance of episodes of torture. Claims of that are part of a campaign to demonize the Cuban authorities and justify foreign intervention. Spokespersons from the USA government have spoken a lot about what happened in Cuba that day and have expressed a supposed desire to help the Cuban people. They have even offered vaccines against the COVID-19, but they don't want to give them to the authorities. Really? Give vaccines to the only country in Latin America that has developed not one but five of them? If they were really interested in relieving the hardships of the Cuban people, they would lift the economic, commercial and financial blockade and roll back the measures taken by the Trump administration that his successor, the Democrat Joe Biden, has left intact. But they can't. They can't because they are afraid. What if they remove the blockade? What if they stop the aggressions against Cuba and we succeed as a country, as an alternative to what they want to impose everywhere? What if we show them that our society could not only be just, but also prosperous, free from their destabilization attempts. Cuba is already an example for the peoples of the world. Now imagine a Cuba without blockade. There is so much we could achieve. That sole idea frightens them. We also alert about their dangerous and irresponsible calls to acts of sabotage, magnicide, selective killings and the call by an elected official in Miami 
for a military intervention in Cuba with unforeseeable consequences to the regional peace and stability. Our call is to solve our problem among the Cubans themselves, without foreign meddling and on the grounds of patriotic unity to advance in areas affected by the combined effects of the blockade, the COVID-19 and our own difficulties. I'm pretty sure you have heard or seen the protests happening in Jamaica against the Cuban government. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Our embassy faced five protests in July, four of them in less than a week span. These were not isolated or spontaneous acts. Demonstrations against Cuban embassies abroad, including a violent attack with Molotov cocktails against our diplomatic mission in Paris, are part of the same coordinated effort that instigated the protests in Cuba last 11th July. In this case, these protests were carried out mainly by Cubans who live in Jamaica. The organizers of these protests didn't become enemies of the revolution on 11th July. They have been against socialism for a long while, as we could hear from the slogans they shouted, and they were just waiting for the occasion to act. These counter-revolutionaries have tried hard to sum other Cubans and Jamaica to their protests, making extensive use of the fake news and manipulations that we have discussed earlier. However, they have achieved little success in that. We still don't know if this protest had permission from the authorities to be carried out. Also, I understand that the authorities' permits are granted for peaceful pickets. However, in these demonstrations, the protesters have made threats and shouted offenses, even personal ones against us. In several occasions, they have come dangerously close to the embassy's perimeter, even blocking the entrance with, with vehicles. In the days following the uh, protest, we also received threatening emails and phone calls. If the objective of these protesters was just to voice their opposition to the Cuban government and to attract media attention, I believe that they made their point from day one. But after five protests, it would seem that their main goal was to harass and intimidate our personnel and disrupt the normal functioning of our diplomatic representation. This kind of demonstrations against the Cuban embassy are unprecedented in Jamaica. We have a Cuban community here with more than a thousand members and the vast majority of them have friendly relations with the embassy. It goes without saying that the Cuban and Jamaican people are very close to each other and the Jamaican population is very supportive of Cuba. We have assisted Jamaica for decades in many areas, including health and education, as a brotherly duty with its people, and we will continue to do so. Can you discuss the current government of Jamaica's relationship with Cuba? We enjoy close relations of friendship and cooperation with Jamaica. We always remember with gratitude the courageous decision of Jamaica, along with Guyana, Trinidad and Tobago and Barbados, to establish diplomatic relations with Cuba in 1972, an act which effectively broke the diplomatic isolation in the hemisphere imposed on us by the USA government after the triumph of the Cuban Revolution. In Jamaica, we keep a medical contingent of around 500 doctors, nurses, and other sanitary personnel to support the work of the Ministry of Health, including the fight against COVID-19. We also have an official collaboration team of around 80 professors, 
teaching English and other subjects in the different levels of Jamaica public education system. Each year, we offer scholarships for Jamaican students with financial constraint to go and study medical sciences in Cuba. We are always exploring ways to increase our cooperation with Jamaica and to expand it to other areas of mutual interest. We see Jamaicans as we see the Caribbean peoples in general, not only as neighbors but also as brothers and sisters, all of us part of a big family. Despite the language differences, we share a lot of common culture, history and goals, our African heritage, our struggles for independence and the challenges of our development as small island states. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you taking time out to answer our questions. Um, this has been another episode of the Checkmate Political Podcast by Tenement Yard Media. Don't forget to check us out on social media on Twitter at Tenement Yard underscore and on our website at www.tenementyardmedia.com. Always. Yeah. Right over my love over here. Judge your best eye with the brightest light And now you shine upon the youth them blind Cause we day as of the truth and right Day as of the truth and right And until